turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and we want to finish up this chapter today. John chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 31 through 38. A preacher once asked an adult Sunday school class, what do you do with the commandments in the Bible? One lady raised her hand and said, I underline them in blue. Okay, then what do you do with the commandments of God? Is it good just to underline them in your Bibles? You know, underlining all the commandments may help you to spot them as you read your Bible. But the point of the commands in the Bible is that we would obey them, not just underline them. Now, I suppose this morning, if we were going to have a rating of ourselves, maybe from a, on a scale of 1 to 10, how well we obey the biblical command to love others. Probably most of us would say, well, maybe a 7 or 8, maybe a 9, but, you know, nobody's perfect, so we wouldn't have a 10. You know, I have a hunch that most of us think, well, you know, I'm basically a loving person, I... Uh, Sure wish my spouse or my kids would be more loving, but I'm a pretty loving person. You know, when you stop to think about the fine print in Jesus' command, your ratings might just plummet. He said here in verse 34, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye love also love one another. Now the fine print that I'm talking about is the phrase, as I have loved you. That kind of bumps his command up a little higher, doesn't it? Maybe up to Mount Everest height. That's that kind of a command it is, a Mount Everest command. You know, a few may make it to the summit, but nobody lives up there. On rare occasions, we will succeed in loving others as Christ loved us, but none of us live there consistently, I'm afraid. It's the same as Paul's command in Ephesians 5.25, which says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Do you love your wife that much? You know, you never quite reach a point where you can say, you know, I've got that one down. Let's move on to something else. No, these are commands that we've got to keep working on. Now you may wonder, in what sense is Jesus' command a new commandment? After all, in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, it says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament law can be summed up by these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. So how is Jesus' command new? Well, I would agree that those who would say that the newness of Jesus' command is a new standard that he gives. And that standard that he gives is, as I have loved you. Jesus' sacrificial love in going to the cross to, uh, for us is a new standard. And so the main idea of our text here this morning is fairly simple to state but impossible to live out consistently apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus commands us to love one another as he loved us. 
And the crux of this command is to understand how Jesus loved us. And we're going to look at five aspects of this love. First of all, Jesus' love was was costly love. Jesus' love was costly love. Go back to verse 31 and 32. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. The statement takes us really back to chapter 12, verse 23, where after hearing some of the Greeks that were seeking him, Jesus said, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And as the context makes it clear, he's referring to his death on the cross. The cross glorified both Jesus and his Father. Now on the one level... On one level, the cross was the epitome of humiliation and of shame. You know, there's no worse way to die than to be stripped naked, flogged, and then nailed to a splintery cross and hung up there to suffer a slow death in front of everyone else. Kind of a public spectacle. But in another superior sense, the cross was the epitome of glory, both for the Father and the Son. To glorify God is to magnify or display His perfect attributes. You see, at the cross, God's love, God's righteousness, His justice, His mercy and grace was magnified as no, at no other occasion in history. At the cross, God's justice was upheld as his sinless son bore the awful penalty that his justice demanded for all sinners. But his love and grace shine forth as he offers eternal life to all who would repent of their sin and trust Jesus alone. Now, verse 32 here refers to Jesus' resurrection and ascension. He says here, If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. The resurrection was God's stamp of approval on Jesus' death. Uh, Jesus' ascension into heaven exalted him again to the right hand of God. Ephesians 1.21 says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. But the point is here, Jesus' love as seen at the cross was costly. And the theme is repeated over and over in the Bible. You notice in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the new Then the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, 2, And and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. First John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. 
We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, it was a costly love. I realize that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, as it says in Hebrews 12, verse 2. And though the cross, or through the cross, he would bring many sons to glory, but still for Jesus to go to the cross, it was a, an act of supreme self-sacrifice. It was costly. Notice, secondly, Jesus' love was caring love. Again, verse 33 says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. You see, Jesus' tender care here for his disciples, and it's seen really in two ways. He addresses them, firstly, uh, first of all, as little children. It's only one time that this word is used in the Gospels. It's only used elsewhere in 1 John, where the apostle whom Jesus especially loved used it seven times. And it was a word of tender feelings, much like a father toward his little children who need his help and his protection. But then we also see not only he addresses them as little children, but we see Jesus' tender care for his own in that he explains to them that he's going to be leaving them soon. And they could not follow him to heaven at this time. Although he explains to Peter uh, and to all uh, later that they're going to follow later. The picture again is of a caring father explaining to his children that he has to go away for a while. Do you ever have had to do that, men? Say, daddy's got to go on a trip. Or I'm going to be away for you for a little while. And there might be some big tears that come down the cheeks of your children. And you, you try to kiss away the tears. You try to give them the hug. And you, you give them a tender hug. And you say, I'm going to be back, though. But I've got to go away for a while. That's the picture that we have here. The point is, Jesus' love was filled with tender feelings for his disciples. Now, You know, some people have emphasized that knowing Bible doctrine is the most important thing that you can do. They've taught that, you know, Bible love is really not feeling love. It's really a mental attitude. And so many times these who uh, emphasize Bible doctrine above everything else, there's no feeling, there's no emotions involved, they become very rude and insensitive and arrogant. But Jesus' love was not like that. Neither was Paul's love. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, But ye were, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Jesus' love was caring love. It wasn't just a mental attitude. Thirdly, Jesus' love was commanded love. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Now in going to the cross, Jesus was obeying the Father's commandment. Back in chapter 10, verse 18. Now he commands his followers to love one another, even as 
he has loved us. And the fact that Jesus commands us to love one another means that you can, you can do it. You can love one another. Believe it or not, you can. Sometimes we think, well, I just can't love that person. They're so unloving. They're so unlovely. You know, there's no excuses if you fail to love another believer. You say, but yes, they're a rascal. Uh, I don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like the things they do. But they're a brother or sister in Christ. And God commands us to love one another. You can't do it in your own strength. Love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit produced in us as we walk in dependence on the Spirit's power. And the reason why we don't love one another or show that love to one another is because so many times we're walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. But just as Jesus obediently sacrificed himself to go to the cross for our salvation, so we are to obediently sacrifice ourselves for others' ultimate good. I've heard husbands or a husband actually say this to me. He said, uh, I don't love my wife anymore. So we're getting a divorce. And man actually tell me that. But you know what? The, the wedding vow wasn't as long as we both shall love one another. What was it? As long as we shall live. That's the wedding vow. And the Bible command is husbands, love your wives. You don't love your wife, you're being disobedient. And you need to figure out some practical ways you show her God's love and, and do it. But husband might protest, you know, I don't have any good feelings toward her. All the years of anger and bitterness have drained the feelings of love that I once had. But you know, lacking the lo- uh, feelings of love is never a valid excuse for ne- neglecting the actions of love. When we obey God's word and begin to love others sacrificially, feelings of love will follow. But you just can't bail out on this commandment to love others because you don't have any feelings for them or you make other excuses. Hey, this is what God's word says. It's a commandment. I'm sure that if Jesus had followed his feelings, he would have not gone to the cross. His love was costly and it was caring, but it was also based on obedience to God's, his father's commandment. Now I've heard preachers tell women, and I've heard even women sometimes say this, nowhere in the Bible does it tell wives to love their husbands. You heard that? Wait a minute. You'd better do a better job at studying your Bibles. Titus 2.4 says, instructing older women in training and influence of younger women, he says to do this, to be sober. What's the next phrase? To love their husbands. That the word of God not be blasphemed. Now that may not be as direct as God saying, husbands, love your wives, as he does in Ephesians 5.25. But you know what? That's pretty strong right there. 
That's a strong implication that if you're going to be a godly, obedient wife who loves the Lord, you're going to love your husband. And that's what God expects. So you cannot do all the things that God instructs you to do unless you have the love of God and a love for your husband and husbands, a love for your wife. Jesus' love was a commanded love. Fourthly, Jesus' love was conspicuous love. Look at verse 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Now Jesus wasn't talking about having some nice thoughts toward others, which no one else can see. He was talking about love that can be seen. It stems from the heart, and it's also seen in the outward actions. It's the sort of love that stands out conspicuously uh, in this self-centered world. They should see the way that Christians love one another, and they should say, you know, they must be a follower of Jesus. You know, sadly, churches are often known more for fighting and divisions over petty issues than for love. It was back in the 1970s, some of this church growth stuff started emerging, and and the church growth gurus observed that Christians like to go to church with others who are just like they are. You know, whites like to go with the whites, blacks like to go with the blacks, rich college graduates like to go with other rich college graduates, Rednecks don't like to go to church with long-haired liberals who favor gun control. They like to go with people they like that are like them. And so these church growth people said, you know, if you want your church to grow, you've got to target the niche that you're trying to reach and market your church to these folks. The problem is that's not a biblical principle. Because in Galatians 3.28, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Jesus Christ. And Colossians 3.11 says, whether there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, when you've become saved and you get saved you become a part of the family of god and god has designed families so that there are young and old black and white all kinds of people together there's a lot of talk today about diversity isn't there you ever thought about the diversity among jesus apostles his disciples for instance he chose simon the zealot zealots were a radical political group that used intrigue and violence and force and deception to try to achieve its goal of liberating Palestine from Roman rule. They refused to pay their taxes and they attacked and murdered government officials, especially hated tax collectors. And then he chose Matthew. What was Matthew? A tax collector. The tax collectors had sold their souls to Rome. They'd milked the Jewish people of their money in order to line their own pockets. And you could not have put two men from more diverse backgrounds in the same group if you tried. These are men that Jesus is telling, love one another. 
And that kind of love should be and would be conspicuous. You know, we hear a lot today about racism. Folks, there is only one race, and that is the human race. Acts 17, 24 through 26 says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath in all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. Without exception, We are all born of one blood. When we consider our origins, we all share two key ancestors, don't we? The first ancestor we share would be Adam. He was the first human being. The second ancestor, of course, is Noah, who by meeting God's grace with his faith, he survived the flood. And because of all mankind destroyed in that flood, we're told in the book of beginnings, Genesis, that the whole earth was populated from Noah and his three sons. Genesis 9 says, And the sons of Noah went forth of the ark, were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. And there, uh, these are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And therefore, we're all related, one of another, through Noah. As if this kinship isn't enough to unite, it's important to remember that through Adam, we were all created in God's image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping uh, thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And so we all came from the same blueprint. We're all one image. Realizing this, to think less of our fellow man is to think less of God. We also must recognize that Jesus died for the sins of every man and woman under heaven. Regardless of skin color, we're all sinners. And Christ died to save sinners. In Christ, faith is the only thing that matters. Nationality is not an issue. Skin color is not even considered or mentioned. It's insignificant. It's inconsequential. If it does not matter to our Creator, why does it matter to so many people today? You see, we're all one race, one blood, one image. In the light of those three realities, we need to resolve to view all men and women as members of the human race. And starting at that point, we can begin to lay aside all the wrongs, and whether they're perceived or genuine. We can and must forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. We can and must love one another as Christ loves us. It's his command. Often then we begin to overcome the racial ignorance, the prejudice, the stereotypes, the bitterness, the hatred that Satan so easily uses to divide and destroy us today. 
You know, we perhaps uh, don't have uh, a lot of diversity in our community. But I know that this is something that's affecting our world and the country we live in. I don't know if you listened to our president's address to the joint session of Congress, but he did recognize this by saying this. He said, we are one people with one destiny. We all bleed the same blood. We all salute the same flag, and we're all made by the same God. Now, we don't have a lot of ethnic diversity in our community, but we should never be opposed to having people of different different ethnic backgrounds come and be a part of our church. We should certainly show the love of Christ to anyone who comes to our church. And so Jesus' love was costly. It was caring. It was commanded. It was conspicuous. Finally, Jesus' love was committed love. And we see this in the last three verses here where Simon Peter said to the Lord, said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered, whether I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Jesus said unto him, Lord, why can I, cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow until thou hast denied me thrice. No doubt many of you have heard messages that focus on Peter's failure and his restoration, and I'm not going to focus on that here this morning. There are many lessons that can be gleaned from that story, and it's a, it's a touching story, except to say this morning that while Peter thought he was fully committed to Jesus, he failed in that way, didn't he? He said he was committed, but his actions didn't show it. I want to focus here on Jesus' commitment, though, uh, uh, to Peter. You know, we can say, we're committed to Christ, but sometimes our actions don't show it. But Jesus' actions are always going to show His commitment to us. He showed His commitment to Peter and the ten disciples, despite of their failures. You see, Jesus knew that Peter would deny Him, and He predicts it here. He knew that all the disciples would flee for their lives where he, when He would be arrested later that night. And in spite of their protest to the contrary, but He didn't cast them off because of their failure. He loved them to the end. And He showed that love by restoring them and using them after His resurrection. You know, love means being committed to another person's highest good. The highest good for all people is that they would become more like Jesus Christ by growing in holiness and living to glorify Him. And that commitment to the other person's highest good is the glue that holds marriages together. Paul said again, and I come back to Ephesians 5, a husband's love for his wife shouldn't aim at sanctifying should aim at sanctifying her so that she would be holy and blameless. And the same commitment should cause church members to work through conflicts and seek to preserve the unity of the church in the bond of peace. You see, bringing together these five elements of Jesus' love, we can kind of hammer out a definition of biblical love. Love is self-sacrificing. It's caring commitment. 
which in obedience to Jesus shows itself in a seeking the highest good of the one loved. And so the costliness of love means that we have to sacrifice our selfish selfish love our, our selfishness for others. The caring aspect of love means that we should never be calloused or rude. Love is kind. The commandment facet of love means that we do it in obedience to our Savior who gave himself for us. And the conspicuous part of love means that it doesn't just consist of, of nice thoughts, but visible actions. And the commitment of love is to see that the other person becomes more like Christ, which is the highest good and for God's glory. Now, I recognize that this love kind of love is ideal. We live in a sinful world. This sinful world presents us with many difficult situations. It requires prayerful wisdom to obey Jesus' command. And I can only offer a few seeds for thought here as we uh, close our message this morning and apply these things to our hearts and lives. Does loving someone require that I like that person? That's a good question, isn't it? Does loving someone require that I like them? Does it mean that I must become a close friend with a difficult person? Well, looking at Jesus' example, I'd have to say not necessarily. While he loved all people, he did not give his time equally to all. He spent most of his time with his disciples, but even among the twelve, he was closer to Peter and James and John than he was the others. And John is the only one that's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus didn't even spend his time with his half-brothers when he had the opportunity. He could have gone to the feast with them back in John chapter 7, if you remember that, uh, which would have meant several days of traveling with them together. You know, kind of having a bonding time, family bonding time. He could have used that time to influence them perhaps or because they were not believing in him. But he left them alone and he went later by himself. Jesus also loved his enemies, the Jewish leaders, but he was constantly provoked and confronted them. He instructed his disciples to shake the dust off their feet and move on if people rejected them and their message. Apparently that was the loving thing to do since Jesus never would have commanded them not to love their enemies. And also, since biblical love seeks the highest good for another person, namely that he become more like Christ, love sometimes requires confronting a person with their sin, letting them experience the consequences of their sin so that they learn to hate it. Love does not enable a person to continue in sinful and irresponsible ways. Love tries to help a person learn to be obedient to God and responsible to bear his own burden. I don't say any of this to say, well, pastor said, I don't have to like that person, you know. Oh, I don't have to get along with that person. I don't say this to give you a cop-out for loving difficult people, but rather, as Paul put it, in Philippians 1.9, my aim is that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. And I would encourage you to meditate on the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Charity loveth long, uh, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinking no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity and rejoiceth in the truth, bearing all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Wow. You think about those things. Don't just say, oh yeah, 1 Corinthians 13, that's the love chapter. Boy, you better get into that chapter and find out what it says and think about it and put it to practice. And then you can go through Paul's letters and his actions in the book of Acts, see how he worked out these qualities in real situations. You see, growing in love requires lifelong effort. You'll experience many failures. But your aim should be to love others even as Jesus loves you. That's the fine print there. As Jesus loves you. How much did Jesus love you? Think about it for a moment. Is your love for others a costly love? Are you willing to sacrifice your selfish desires to help someone else? Is your love a caring love? Or are you calloused and rude? Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Is your love and obedience to God's commands? Chapter 14, we're going to see that if we really love God, we're going to keep His commandments. Is your love conspicuous? Again, verse 35 says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. That means it's going to have to show. People aren't going to know unless it shows. Love isn't according to what you say, but it's seen by your actions. Is your love a committed love? Are you committed to seeing others being more Christ-like? How can you expect others to be Christ-like if you're not committed to be Christ-like yourself? I trust that as we think about what Jesus has given to us here, that we'll meditate on these things and may it make a difference in the way we live our lives. Let's pray.